Hello, folks. My name is Spencer George, and you're listening to The Good Folk Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce you to a wonderful friend of mine, Adam Perez, someone we have long been hoping to get on this podcast. I first met Adam when we were teaching in rural North Carolina schools, and we bonded over our similar frustrations with media portrayals of Appalachian culture, our complicated relationships to home, and our belief that art is a path forward for progressive change in rural spaces. Adam cast a lens on Appalachia that feels close to the place I hold in my own childhood memories. Beautiful, even when haunted by the ghost of its past. Adam defines himself as a photographic artist currently based in Greensboro, North Carolina. His work has centered around the heart of Appalachia and southern rural communities, seeking to uncover his own roots and connections to the vast historical region he explores and its storied but often heavily obscured past. By continuing an artistic process he started while photographing and participating in the 2019 Harlan County Coal Miners protest, Adam has grown closer to understanding himself and the deep well of emotion he carries for the places he calls home. This is a conversation about art and culture, about place and regionality, and about the drive for self-definition. It's also about the importance of connection and the role of community in shaping Southern futures something that benefits all of us, no matter where in America you live. I hope you enjoy this conversation. He's, he's at my place while my roommate's gone, but yeah, I'm going to try to get there, so for sure. And, you know, for the sake of everyone's time, we can go ahead and actually, like, get into the conversation, because a lot of that probably will be some life updates and things, but I'm so excited to finally get to do this and have you on here and to hear just about everything that you're up to because to all of our listeners who don't know, Adam is just an amazing human, individual artist, being and someone we have we have been trying to get on this podcast since we started. So I'm I'm really happy that we were able to finally get the time for everyone and and that we get to have you here. It only took like three years of convincing. Yeah, (laughs) I just never tend to put myself out here in a public way like this. Um, I'm not often very uh, practiced at talking about myself or what I do with my artistic discipline. so yeah, this is all a very new experience for me. Thank you for having me though, of course. Like I am so happy to be here. Just very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, we always like to think that um Vic described it once to a potential guest, and I've been using this ever since, as it's like you're eavesdropping on your cool friends at the coffee shop. So that is that is how we want this podcast to feel to anyone who is listening. It's you know, we're just people out here and uh, none of us know more than anybody else. So we're just having conversations about art and life and the South and all the things I know all three of us are really passionate about. So I'm I'm excited. <laughs> no, yeah, I am. I'm definitely excited. Um, actually, Adam, my first question for you is kind of twofold. So number one, where is home these days and where is home to you in general when you think about that word? So home these days uh, is actually in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, a city that ever since coming here for UNCG, I have actually really, really fallen in love with. Um, There's a community here that I do really care about, um, and it is amazing to live here and start surrounding myself with more of those people I care about, like CJ and Julie and Irvin, who all live here too. 
Um, it's also been really great for me to get back into the music uh, scene a little bit. Uh, for people who don't know, that's where I got a lot of my start with photography was just photographing bands that I knew and people I liked and people I cared about. And it's all kind of uh, rolled from there, I guess. Um, home to me is probably Appalachia in general. Uh, I don't want to necessarily claim a state either of North Carolina or Virginia or Kentucky or Tennessee or West Virginia. Um, a lot of my family is from all over and I've lived all over in North Carolina and West Virginia and Virginia. Um, so I think Appalachia in general is what I like to consider my home. Uh, it's where my roots come from, especially with my family. And it is what the majority of my art centers itself around. So talk to me a little bit about your art, which is, I know you're a photographer primarily, but you do, you do many other things. So talk to me about photography and how you got your start at that. So uh, it's really funny. Uh, Tori was around for pretty much the start of all of it. Uh, I have now known Tori for six years, 2016, right? College. And I always kind of had an interest in photography, but it was specifically that not art, not fine art. It was how my brain separated it. Um, and when I started going to UNCG, I had actually never taken an art class before. I didn't take art in middle school, didn't take art in high school. Um, and I was kind of there thinking, oh, I want a photography degree. I want to learn how to shoot weddings, learn how to shoot commercial. And then I found out that I fucking hated all of that. And there were instead these like amazing educators around me, uh, like a professor, Tori and I had, uh, Leah Sobsby, who is just incredible. And they just kind of blew my world open to what it meant to be a photographer, what it meant to be an artist. Um, yeah, and I, I know I definitely would not be there without them. I think it's a great answer that you're giving, which is kind of about the idea. I feel very similarly about my creative writing practice, which is that I had mentors and professors who saw what I was interested in long before I knew that that was what I was interested in. And kind of, even though I was in the right field, guided me into the things I really cared about. I have to say here, because I know you as a teacher, and that is how we met, and and all three of us actually did that. When you think about this role of teaching and instruction in your practice, both the mentors and professors that you've had, and then your own role, having, having been a teacher and, and worked a little bit. Um, if you want to give some context into that and think about what does the role of instruction and teaching mean to you in terms of being an artist? Um, no, that's a great question. Wow. Um, I think a lot of it did come from wanting to be able to pass down that same feeling that I was given from the educators before me. When I was doing what I cared about and it was clicking, it was unlike anything I've ever experienced. And I didn't have those eureka moments until educators pushed me to have them. Um, one instance in specific for me comes from, uh, which you and Tori are familiar with my uh, Black Pearls project, which was about a uh, Harlan or a Harlan based coal company's mining strike. Um, 
it was the Black Jewel Mining Company. They went on strike and uh, I wanted to go up there and be a part of the tent city, but also start photographing. And uh, to a college student, I kind of had this idea that I needed permission. Like I was supposed to be told by someone how to do this, where to go. And I went to Leah and I was like, how would I photograph any of that? And she like pulled me aside and she was like, just go. That's all you have to do. Just drive up there right now and photograph it. And I started going up there for weeks at a time. Uh, roommate Irvin uh, also came with me. Uh, he has been a creative partner of mine for a long time. And it's in moments like that where I was pushed to do something that I just couldn't wrap my head around without having someone basically put the writing on the wall for me. And I want to be able to do that for a lot of people that, I guess for me, a lot of my students, they always talked about like, oh, I, I can't draw, I can't do this, I can't do art. And it's like, man, you're sitting here in an art class with an art teacher. If it can be taught, it can be learned. And I always try to explain the difference between talent and skill and how quickly skill can catch up to talent if you really work on that. I think really it just comes from wanting to find a way to give that to uh, the students I've met that have then have it in them already, but don't exactly know how to access it on their own. Um, if any of that makes sense. Yes, it makes total sense. And like, oh my God, I'm so glad you bring it up this way because when we talk about art and, you know, this is primarily a podcast that we talk to artists. So many people that I will talk to about this podcast come to me and they're like, well, I would love to be an artist. That's so great. That's so cool. But I don't have the training. I've never taken a class. I'm just full of all these ideas. I don't actually know how to do it. And the number one thing that I feel like I've been taught, and it's exactly what you're describing, is this idea of just go and do it. Like it might be bad. It might not be good. But we think so much about craft and practice and these things that you have to go to the academy and get the degree and learn. And it's like at the end of the day, what matters is not the classes that you sit in over and over again that teach you how to go and, you know, I'm not a photographer, but create the composition and do the ethical practice. It's like oftentimes what really matters is, is if you just go and do it and start making those connections. And, you know, even the genesis of this podcast, like Vic and I deliberated about this for years before we we're like, you know what? We had no idea what we're doing, but let's just do it. Um, and I'm thinking about that with my own creative writing practice. You know, I've been working on novels and stories for years or talking about them and thinking about them. And it's like, you just have to start it and see where it goes. And it might not be perfect. And so much of what I think about in my role as an educator and an instructor is encouraging that imperfection because you're right, talent and skill can catch up to one another. But what what's not going to get you anywhere is not doing anything. Um, and just thinking about, oh, I'm waiting for when it feels right. Because there's often not one right moment. I'm thinking about you're describing this kind of initial project that you started working on or, or the one that we're probably all most familiar with as in many ways, it's it's like a creative collaborative ethnography. Um, and for people who don't know what ethnography is, I have to I have to shout it out here. I'm folklorist and, and very much in the world of anthropology and ethnography in my mind is collaborative work with the community. It's been misconstrued or taken in so many different wrong ways over the years. But the approach that I have been taught from my many mentors about ethnography and that I try to pass on to my students is collaborative work to tell a story. Um, and often that is putting 
the power to tell one's own story in the hands of the communities you work with. There are many different ways to do this. Academia has one definition and one way that they will teach you. But I think so much of like documentary photography and so many of the photographers we talk to is a different way to do it. And the project you're describing, to me, I'm like, this is an ethnography. And I don't know if you think of it that way or if you have any ideas on how you approach this collaborative work with communities and very specifically Appalachian communities, because Adam and I have talked about this at length, but we both have pretty deep Appalachian roots and and feel very strongly about the way Appalachia as a region and, and Southern Appalachia in particular is represented and often misconstrued. So there's two parts to this, which is I'd love to hear your thoughts on collaborative work with communities, but also how do you do that in a region like Appalachia and, and what does it mean to do that there? So for me, I think collaborative work within community, and I would agree, yes, uh, almost any of the projects I've done uh, in Appalachia, even more landscape-based um, projects are still collaborative. Um, a lot of it comes down to research, talking to uh, people within the region. Uh, just recently, I did a shoot that was not in Appalachia, but I know I would not be able to pull off without a massive team of people around me. I had um, Urban with me and probably eight other people just to get this shoot accomplished. Um, and I think in those moments where I'm collaborating with other artists, other people who are like-minded and how they're perceiving the world and what's going on around them, I've never felt more alive. Um, like it's all coming together and it all makes sense and everyone's on the same page. And I think for me, when it comes to communities like Appalachia, um, I have found a great amount of safety and beauty and solitude in a lot of the places that I've lived in Appalachia, especially as a child, I was a terror. So my parents would just simply open the back door and let me run off into the woods for hours at a time. And then they would holler into the mountains and I would come home. Um, and a lot of the work I do now, I think is centered around that feeling of safety and community I could find just by being out in the woods alone. Um, and it's weird to say community when you're out in the woods alone, but there is almost something you can feel in Appalachia, like a hum, especially when you are in somewhere like where I come from, like Bluefield or a place called Jenkins Jones. Um, Jenkins Jones now is maybe 90, 96 people. So it's a very, very, very small, tight-knit community. Um, and I would say I've had probably a lot of success photographing those communities because I do come from them. Uh, it is just like, kind of truthful that people in Appalachia are not always the most trusting of outsiders, but I also think we should keep in mind that a lot of Appalachians have a really good reason for that. And that's also what I want to talk about in my work is how these communities have been failed. Um, what I do with a lot of my landscapes or uh, like the piece I have up in art space in Raleigh right now, um, it's essentially a little cabin with a hole in the woods that you can just see the cabin through. Um, and that cabin has been in Bluefield for as long as I can remember. I was just recently walking up there, taking care of my grandfather, and that's why I took the, 
took the photo. And I want to show you this little cabin, right? This little area. And I'm showing you a concrete reality that it exists, that it's there. I have my own subjective views and opinions on it, but I'm not necessarily telling them what you are. I do want to see what the audience is going to take from it on their own. And they can take from it abject poverty. They can take from it desolation or this or that. But there is a tremendous amount of strength and care and beauty and love in all of these places that I'm photographing. And for me, that's why I'm gravitating towards them. That's the kind of community I'm looking for. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. I started rambling. No, it absolutely does. And I'm thinking about this because I, I have a lot of conversations that are very similar. And people say, oh, well, when you talk about, you know, what you're doing with Good Folk and wanting to show rural places in a certain way. I, ha I had someone once tell me I was a Southern apologist. And I was like, that doesn't mean what you think it means. No. And yeah. yeah. And I'm like, what I'm not trying to do is try to redeem this place or ignore that there is, you know, abject poverty and suffering and deep layers of violence and discrimination in, in this region and, and especially in places like Appalachia. But it is to show that within that, there is also joy and love and resistance and community. And I think that feels really important because sometimes when you talk about flipping the narrative a little bit, people assume you're doing it at the expense of not telling one story. And the way that I see it is we have one story that has been told many times, often in very damaging and stereotypical ways. And it's not to ignore that. It's not to try to say it doesn't exist. Anyone who has family in Appalachia or who has driven through it, you know, you can see it up close. It's not something you have to look for. And what is hard to me sometimes is that people will portray it as the joy and community being the things that you have to look for that are harder to find. And I don't think that's true. I think that's a story that we get due to the many misrepresentations and stereotypes that we have. And it is our job as artists and individuals and, and people who do have those community ties, because you're absolutely right. You know, I want to go back and amend a little bit of what I said earlier, which is, yes, just do it, but don't just go and show up to a community and say, hey, I want to use you for my art project and take some photos and then leave, right? Like when we talk about collaborative work, yes, take the first step, do it, but also make the time and effort to seed those relationships and really understand what is it that is useful to the communities that I'm working with. So yes, make the art, but also do it in, in the right way. Um, and I think there are two folds, two pieces to that. But what I see is the, the role of people who do have both the artistic practice that feels true to them and the connections to communities that might be getting misrepresented. There is a little bit of a duty, I think, to work to showcase the joy and love and community. Um, it's how I got into this work that I felt so many people were asking me questions or forcing me to defend the places I called home in a way that I don't think they understood them at all. And so I felt like it was my job as a writer to do to do what I could to say, it's not that that isn't true, but this is also here as well. And we contain these, you know, it's not a binary. Appalachia can be both a little bit backwards and definitely, you know, poorer than a lot of other regions in this country, but also a place where I have felt more love and joy and community than anywhere else I've ever been. And I think that holds true both in America and globally. Um, you know, we're seeing all around the world right now incredible stories of resistance and resilience and joy that are coming out of 
some of the most oppressive situations. And oftentimes, I, I think the two really go hand in hand. Exactly. No, I agree completely. I, I think that's one thing I feel very strongly about Appalachia in the South in uh, general is I know so many people, especially growing up the way I did, that the only thing they could think of was to just leave, to get out of the South and get out of Appalachia in general. But then you are abandoning this beautiful, amazing place to the people who aren't caring about it in the same way that you are, honestly. And I think that you hear it a lot of like, you know, for there to be active resistance to something, there has to be something oppressing that too. And one of the reasons I don't want to leave Appalachia, I don't want to leave the South, is because I know that in some ways my existence there or the existence of, say, other queer people in Appalachia is radical. So if you take yourself out of that equation, you are no longer resisting something that is there. It would be disingenuous for us to say it's not there. Um but yes, I agree completely that I, I hate the idea of people thinking that's all that's there. Um, I have met some of the most amazing, beautiful, kind, just loving people in Appalachia. And I don't know. I think it would be a shame for you to essentially discount all of those people because of preconceived notions. And I think exactly what you're saying about the pressure that is put on people especially, you know, people who often are a little bit more liberal leaning, um, who especially are queer. There's, I, I always talk about metronormativity on this podcast, so I'm not even going to get into it, but there's so much um, that is just so much pressure that is put on people who don't kind of fit a stereotypical image of what it is to be someone in both Appalachia and in the South. And oftentimes you're absolutely right. The only alternative you're given is to leave, which for some people is the right move. I have, you know, I know many people who that is what they needed to do or they needed to leave in order to be able to come back with with the knowledge that they had. I think for me, I look at my life and I'm like, I probably did need to leave the South for a little bit to be able to come back and, and do what I'm trying to do now. But I don't think it should be the only option. And I find it one of the most infuriating things to me is when I see a lot of very liberal, quote unquote, blue states who will look down very specifically on anyone who chooses to stay. Um, I remember Massachusetts advertising on billboards in Florida and saying, you know, come here, we have queer rights. And it's like, if we all leave, then what is left? And I think that's the thing that scares me. Yeah. All I can really say is I agree completely. Yes, no, I agree completely. That is what scares me. The idea that we would then leave the uh, like this just completely unique, beautiful, amazing place to people that will essentially tear it apart over time. Um, and I just don't think that's fair to the place. I don't think it's fair to the people that live there. Um, I don't know. And if I could go back too to like um, one of the projects I was talking about, I think for me, I wanted to document community and Appalachian communities in a way that I was talking about this with someone recently that I am basically just photographing and making things because I already have that drive to make them. 
And I'm essentially putting them out there, believing and hoping that this is going to find its audience in the sense of it is going to find the people that it will resonate with in such a way that it will like unlock that little thing inside them of like, oh, this is why I love the South. This is why I love Appalachia. This is why I love the people. This is why I love the beauty of it, the place, all of it. Sorry, I'm not very articulate. No, no, I'm just thinking as you're speaking, now I'm thinking about all the work that did that for me or that made me shift my thinking a little bit to say, you know, that awakening moment, because it is absolutely real to, to look at something and say, oh, that's the kind of work that's being done here. That's the story that I want to tell. I mean, I remember reading Bitter Southerner for the first time and, and having my mind blown being like, this has been around this whole time, right? And so part of the work I see that we that I try to do with Good Folk and, and part of the role I'd like to be able to play is that then a lot of it is finding the people who are doing it, finding the work that's being done and making this community and this connection where, you know, I'm like, I, we started the podcast because I was like, I am an artist in a rural place and I know I'm not the only one, but I feel deeply lonely. So how can I find the other people who are doing this and connect it and create a community? And what is what is so incredible and beautiful is to see the ways in which that has really happened. And, you know, even this web here, like just the three of us on this call, you know Vic through a different route. I know Vic through a different route. For those of you who are listening don't know, Adam and I taught at the same school in different years. So there's so many strange interwebs that get woven here. And it's really cool to see that, to see that bloom. And my my vision and hope is that, you know, we have that all across the region. And you putting your work out there, having that, I'm just gonna do it, I'm just gonna put it out into the world moment could serve as an awakening for someone else. And I think that is something I, I want to find ways to facilitate um, in the larger community as a whole. Like, I, I definitely think that was one of the reasons I got into teaching. And I, I do want to touch on, like, this idea of rural art, especially in how the fine art world can separate it. Because uh, I remember on uh, your last episode, you guys talked about craft art and the, like, the ways that gets kind of differentially weighted <laughs> the way that kind of gets separated out and something we've actually been talking at or, or talking about a lot at Sika right now because of an exhibit we have up that is all textile based is that a lot of that kind of talk around craft and folk art is derogatory it is separating it entirely from the sense of you are an artist you are a fine artist you can only be these things if you have a classical education and a degree and you're working with materials in a medium we decide is fine art. And I fucking hate it. I get so upset about it. Because you're right preaching now, to the choir. <laughs> no, yeah, I get so angry because I, I right now I'm in an exhibit that is full of nothing but art from rural communities and people who grew up there and are really, really putting their voices out there. And to be honest, that isn't something I've seen in the past couple of years. It is only recently that I have really seen this shift towards actually wanting to appreciate and find a way to respect rural art. I say find a way because I feel like so many people have to kind of fight the cognitive dissonance they have 
about those, again, those preconceived notions about the South and Appalachia and what it means to be immortal. So they're like constantly fighting this cognitive dissonance just to learn how to appreciate something. And I know that when we talk about those awakening moments, like that's what happened to me. And Tori can 100% vouch for this even. When we were in college, the beginning of my work around the South was not positive. Um, I would, I was specifically talking about how I grew up in just poverty, right? And I was not approaching it from a very positive place. And then I had, again, a professor who was sitting down with me and he started talking to me and he was like, I mean, is this how you really feel? And I had to examine that. I had to really analyze that. And I realized that what I was doing was I was pushing a perspective that was even being given to me by those around me in college at the time. Like when I was making art about the South or Appalachia, it was seen as close to backwards, close to redneck, close to hillbilly. And it's like, well, what if I am all of those things? And what if that is the art I'm making? And yeah, I had that awakening moment that made me realize like, oh, I'm talking about this in such a negative way when I don't fucking believe that at all. I, and it completely blew my mind and completely shifted how I wanted to talk about the South and Appalachia and my own work. And, you know, I'm someone who very much loves the South and very much loves Appalachia. But I had to learn how to grow into that, just like you were talking about leaving the South so you could figure out how to do that. Um, I had to grow into that love. And if I can find a way in my art to also help others grow into their love of a community they find themselves in, like, I really do want to do that. Um, that was something I always told my students, too. I... Spencer, you know, the schools we taught at were very unique. Tori, you know. And I had a sixth grader one time tell me that, why should I care about any of this? Because I know that society as we have it now is not going to be the same in 40 years. It will not exist in the way I know of it now in 40 years. I was a sixth grader and I was blown the fuck away. And I had to like kneel down at him. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> I was like, you are right. But what I want you to take away from what I'm teaching you is that there's a larger, greater world out there that you can critically think about. And because you're learning how to critically think and because you're learning how to examine what's around you, you're going to be able to help your community much better than before. I'm not teaching you math because I like math. I'm teaching you this math right now because it's helping you stretch your brain power that you can then use to better a community around you. And that's what I always told my photo club too. I remember on the last day of photo club, I told them that I knew I could be proud of them forever. From this moment on, I would be proud of them till the day I died because I knew wherever they went, they were going to be key parts of a community that they learned to love and cherish and care about. Yeah, and I, I, that's, I don't know, that's what I want to be able to do with pretty much anything I do, I think. I think you've just described my entire experience in, in much better words than I could have. And it's, all of this is just so, so true. And 
the constant thing I'm working against is people will think the way I talk about the South right now that I love this place more than anything and I always have. And I just wish those people had known me in middle school when I hated this place more than anybody I've ever met. I mean, I thought my family was backwards. I remember getting made fun of for the accents that my family had. I mean, I, I don't have an accent and it's something that comes up a lot. And there's a reason for that. It is because I, I trained it out of myself. We have the exact same issue. I lost my accent on purpose. Yeah. Most people I know who hate this place more than anyone are often those who are from here and who are taught that they don't belong here and that the there is no way to love a place that does not want you. I've written about this extensively in the newsletter of how hard it is to be here in this moment to be doing this work. And I and I can't even imagine how, you know, this goes back far and further and further than we're even talking about. But to be doing work in a place that you love, that you feel like doesn't even want you there half the time. And then to be doing that against a larger national backdrop where most of the people who are supposed to be your allies or people who you might agree and fall on similar lines of thinking with are going to critique and judge you for wanting to do the work in the place you call home at all. And so what I, yes, exactly, right? And what I feel like I am always trying to do and, and wrap my head around is to think, I am not telling you to love the South. I am trying to teach the students that I work with to be critical. And within that, to see that there is, like we've been talking about, both kind of loss and displacement and joy and resilience at the same time. You know, the South has this reputation of being such an oppressed place because there are so many histories of resilience and of opposition. Um, you see that all around the world. But you have to be critical and you have to learn how to think that story. And it's exactly what I have carried into my teaching practice. And to go all the way back to the, the art and craft thing, it is I teach a unit on material culture um, for the last two semesters. I have TA'd a intro folklore course and we do a big unit on material culture. And one of the first things that I will instill in them is what is craft to you, of which they'll say, you know, quilting and pottery and all the things we associate generally with rural places. And art is painting and photography and things that are something you would go learn in a university. And it is fascinating, these distinctions that fall across rural and urban lines. And in their end of year reflections, almost always one of the biggest things that come up comes up is, wow, this really blew my mind to think about these things differently. And I think that's our greatest role, both as artists and as educators. And I think artists are inherently educators. I think all art is and should be political, but that's my personal opinion. But it is to think critically and to get people to think critically about the world and to do that in the way that, yes, all we can pay attention to is this current moment. The world is going to be different in 40 years. And hopefully that's a good thing. But what we can do through art is process that. And so it's like both on a personal level and on a social level, art is catharsis, right? Where I had to write all of my stories about reckoning with gun culture and redneck culture and the stereotypes that were put on me and the stories that, you know, were true in my family, but nobody knew about because we didn't want them to before I could ever get to writing about this place from a place of love. And it, it doesn't happen overnight. And even now I still... I still struggle to say I love the South. People will say that to me. They're like, oh, you must love North Carolina. And I like jolt because it's like, well, yes. Yes, I do. But I also spent 22 years doing everything I could to leave this place. And it feels it feels wrong and strange sometimes to have to to say, yes, I love it. and I'm going to stay. And, and, and just in my own family, it's my mom was the first person to ever leave the state. And 
there's a whole thing that I've reckoned with where is coming back after she worked so hard to leave a failure, which is, again, that's that's my own personal bias because all my mother has ever wanted is for me to come back home. Right. So we're always working through these things and we're always unlearning them. And it never it does get easier, but it never gets through. But I think exactly what you're saying, art and specifically community and, and building community around art are the best ways I know of to, to reckon with that. No, I, I agree completely. And um, I think that is something I'm trying to focus on more in my life right now, even now that I'm post uh, teaching, um, kind of finding myself in a completely different position than I was a year ago, uh, making very different work. Um, and kind of tying back into the idea of collaborative process, I work a lot with uh, best friend, uh, Irvin Maldonado, a great guy. And he and I have been talking uh, 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 a lot more kind of concrete about the idea of artist collectives and residencies and all sorts of things like that. Because especially for artists who are making work about their community, it is one of the worst things in the world to then have to tell them they have to leave their community to either present it or learn or like, you know, going to grad school here, there, wherever. This idea that you have to leave a community you already care about and you're already making work for uh, to continue growing. And so I think for me, the last couple years have really been trying to figure out how I can contribute to that in the grander space that I currently reside in. And I don't have anything concrete yet on that, really. But I know that it's something I want to continue pushing for and continue finding ways to integrate into my life. What does it mean to you to be someone who stays? However you want to interpret that. I don't know. I really don't. I think for me, it's something so subjective for every person because everyone's going to have their own reasons for staying, too. And everyone's going to have their own reasons for leaving. Like earlier, I talked about the idea of uh, leaving the South and then essentially abandoning it to people. I don't want to give the wrong impression that I also think negatively of those people. I get why you would. Everyone's going to have their own reasons for staying. Everyone's going to have their own reasons for leaving. I think what it meant for me to stay was to try to figure out how to love this place. Like I knew I wanted to, I knew I really, really did. So staying was also figuring out how to stay, if that makes sense. I oftentimes feel like I'm someone who has a very hard time walking a certain path if I don't have a landmark on the horizon to look at essentially. Um, uh, when I was teaching and oftentimes during school, I would talk about feeling like uh, if you're in a car in the middle of the desert and there's just absolutely nothing on the horizon, uh, your brain can't really actually judge how fast you're going or how close you are to the horizon. And I felt like that constantly. But I had to remind myself that even though I feel like I'm not going anywhere, I'm not moving forward there are steps being taken and they are leading somewhere. Um, and that's what it felt like to stay. I felt like I was just taking those steps and steps and steps 
until I saw something on the horizon that also made me want to stay. It is why we we run Good Folk, because that that for me was my thing that I was like, could I make the community or, or you know, the community's been there. I knew it existed, but it was like, could I use this as a pathway to bridge the connection to create that vision of the world in which I want to stay? So my follow up question with that is when you think about this vision for an, for an Appalachia in a South that makes you want to stay and, you know, now, but also 50 years down the line. What does that look like to you or feel like? Openly queer, openly diverse, um, which is not to say there's not places like that in Appalachia, the South, that don't already exist. Uh, There are, and I've been a part of them, and I've seen the kind of good and power those kind of communities can have. So I think for me, just finding a way to spread that network out, because like you were saying, that community already exists. So for me, I don't necessarily think it's about creating a community. It's about finding a way to connect people that already exist that are then searching for that community. For me, yes, it looks openly queer, openly diverse, sustainable. I think that's something I care about a lot. I come from a coal mining family. Um, I was going to be a coal miner before going to college. So sustainable is another big thing for me. I, I want to find a way. Well, I know I can't find a way on my own, but I would like to see a way that Appalachia can, can sustain itself in a much more sustainable way, if that makes sense. I work in Southern and Appalachian climate change, so it absolutely makes sense. And I just, I just want to say, I resonate so much with everything you're describing. I'm, I'm going through my own personal journey right now of trying to figure out: Am I going to have to leave the South to continue to study the South at a doctoral level? Which is a really tough, tough choice and, and decision that I've been dealing with for the last few months. So all of this is really, really resonant for me, and I. I really love this vision of the world you're describing and I hope we can make it happen and and be, you know, just small little pieces of connectivity. With that point of connectivity, are there any artists or photographers or, you know, I know you work very heavily as well with musicians. Are there any people who come to mind that you feel like are working right now on achieving that vision or or contributing to it in the way that you feel inspired by? Honestly, uh, a lot of the people that you guys have already kind of featured. Um, Thank you so much. We try. <laughs> no, yes. No. And, and and I do mean that legitimately. I remember you connecting uh, me even with a photographer not too long ago that I am actually forgetting his name right now. That feels very bad. Jesse yes, Barber. Yes. Who is amazing. Fantastic yeah. photographer and is like photographing communities with such care and love and like just gorgeous work just incredibly gorgeous work i'm so obsessed with all of jesse's work truly oh yes no yeah i no. the the second you connected us and i went to his instagram i was like oh my god this is everything like i care about this is amazing so go back and listen to our episode with jesse if you haven't we'll link to it here and shout out jesse we think you're awesome yeah no amazing yeah really sweet too when i got to talk to him really nice For music, um, a little bit of a shout out because my 
roommates band, but also Irvin and I have been doing a lot of their promotional work. That's what uh, we've kind of been working on for the past couple months secretly. Um, a band called Sloth and Boone, S-L-O-T-H-H, uh, really great friends of ours. And they bring a kind of like heavy punk alternative energy to Boone and Appalachia that I also really appreciate. I am a very, very, very big fan of alternative bluegrass, alternative country. So I think really finding any more ways to inject alternative culture into the South and Appalachia, I'm all about. I know you and I listen to a lot of the same stuff, so I'm right there with you. And and I'm thinking as well, yeah, I'm thinking yes. about, <laughs> again, this kind of art is catharsis. Like I have resonated so deeply with a lot of the really like, southern appalachian folk punk that is reckoning with religion and violence and loving a place and hating a place and wanting to leave it and not leaving it and like there's a lot of that out there and um it has you know i i made many a playlist when i was first even realizing that i missed the south which felt it felt so strange to be away and to realize oh I actually even miss that place and then just making playlist of all of this music so it's it's amazing to see artists across so many different mediums working through that feeling in so many different ways and you know I don't know that we all need to reach the point of love to make good art you know I think you can make really incredible art out of that frustration as well and it's important to to honor that and to work through that and you know if you get through it and decide this is somewhere you want to stay we're here and if you don't, then we understand that experience as well. But yeah, Adam, we'll have to have you make a playlist of, of all the people yeah. you're listening to. I, oh my God, you shouldn't have even said that. It will be hours long. I am a professional playlist maker. I love making playlists. Um, no, I had the exact same uh, situation, honestly. When I realized I was missing Appalachia and missing the South the way I was, um, I made a playlist on Spotify called Sue the Homesick Soul that grew to maybe 30 some hours. I mean, it got, it got pretty large and it is by far not my largest playlist, but it's probably still one of my most listened to. And I do find myself like constantly adding to that rotation I'll even go back to it to rediscover artists that, you know, maybe I haven't listened to in a good while that I can then fold into new playlists. And um, for me, I think a, a big journey of loving the South was music. I am a very musical person. I love music maybe more than most anything. It's uh, probably my most consumed form of media. There were a lot of artists that, really kind of opened up that world for me that I was like, oh shit, like there's all these musicians talking about a place I love, a place I'm learning to exist in, a place I'm learning to care more about. And they're doing the same thing in their music. They are doing the same thing. I know everyone loves the dude, but absolutely my favorite coming out of uh, Kentucky right now is Tyler Childers. I think he does a excellent job of blending a lot of that classical uh, bluegrass feel with a lot of the more modern 
angry and sometimes like violent ways of feeling about it. Um, especially like the song Long Violent History. Incredible song. Nose to the grindstone. No, yes. Specifically the live version. Yes, yeah. exactly. People li- people say they like Tyler Childers, and I'll ask them if they've listened to Nose to the Grindstone, and they're like, no. And I'm like, it's go back and listen. To Probably it. one of his best, along with the song for me, Cole. I was actually the first person in my family to receive a college degree, to get out in whatever way that can be defined by some people. And I think like finding a lot of that music really, really brought me back to the roots that I realized I was neglecting and hearing the accents, the beautiful voices and accents and all of those musics or in all of that music. And, you know, I do want to go back to the accent thing really quick because I do want to tell a little story about why this happened. I would go for it. Looking back on it, so upset, but I was probably in middle school And I had a heavier Southern accent at the time. And it was one of the first times I ever had to give like a big presentation. And I gave this massive presentation. I was so nervous. I felt like I did really good. And the only note my teacher had was that I sounded like a redneck, was that I did not sound intelligent. And looking back on it, it really, really affected me. And I got rid of my accent completely. I really like felt that if I was someone that was going to be listened to or someone that like people wanted to hear what I had to say, then it definitely couldn't be having a Southern accent with it. And looking back on it, I'm so angry with that fucking teacher. Like it's awful that you would say something like that. Um, Yeah, no, I just wanted to get that story out there (laughs) about why that happened because I mean- It's amazing how similar it is to my own story actually, which is, I'm sure there are countless people- I think it's a similar story to so many. Like I I know, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he's an amazing author in Appalachia, Silas. um, Silas House. Thank you. Yes, Silas House, an amazing author. Um, I remember reading about how someone called him a hick after he gave a speech. And I was like, fuck, dude. Yeah, that happened to me. Like, I I see how this is a constant issue. (laughs) Yeah. I remember being in a school assembly and I was probably like seventh or eighth grade and someone was giving a presentation on Southern mountain dialects as like, oh, wow, look at these people who have accents that are dying out, right? Very similar to how people will talk about like Gullah Geechee communities. It's all infuriating, but yes. they were going on and on about these accents and acting like nobody had them. And someone like leans down from the row and they they tap me and they're like, that sounds like your family. Your family sounds like that. And they meant it in a very derogatory way. And and I it was the first time I remember that cognitive moment where I was like, are we different? Yeah, Am I different? Yeah. So for context, I grew up... Um, my family's all in North Carolina. I grew up for the first like 12 years of my life in North Carolina and then moved to South Carolina and went through a private high school there, which was a incredibly jarring experience to have the two, the two in opposition. But I remember having a moment where I was like, I am not Southern in the way that the people in this room are Southern. And they see me differently. I remember they told me I could um, waddle back to Walterboro where I belonged because I had an accent back then. And I I came from a different part of the South than what was understandable to the the old money low country. And it was, I it, that moment stands out so heavily in my mind. And I remember I went home and I said, mom, like, 
do we have accents? Do we sound this way? And she was like, if you ever want to go anywhere else, I don't want you to have the experience that I had in New York City when I got there with my Appalachian accent. So we are training this out of you. And oh. and to this day, she will still correct things I say. I, I love my mother dearly. Hi, mom. But she will correct when I say certain words. She'll say, don't say it that way. And I'm like, do you know how much I want my accent back? Um, yeah, it is. It is amazing. And I remember in New York, I was working for StoryCorps and um, I was working for the Mobile Tour, which is an amazing or they're an amazing organization and the mobile tour is an amazing project. It's a Airstream trailer that goes around the country and, and records people's stories. It was kind of my first foray into folklore work. But my job when I was an intern was to call all the people who would come into the booth. And we were at that point in Tennessee and, or we were headed to Tennessee. So I was calling to confirm appointments. And I remember I got on the phone with someone and I heard the accent and I immediately like broke into tears because it had been so long since I had even heard someone sound like anybody I knew. And um, those two moments, they, they really stand out in my memory. And I think it's important to recognize that isolating experience with that of realizing even in a region, you can be marked as different. Um, and, and I remember teaching in middle schools and, and even here in like rural North Carolina schools, teachers would talk about, oh, you know, those kids, they're from the mountains. And, and in a really derogatory way. And it still like blows my mind. So I think the role in all of this with art is to, to not treat the South as a monolith, to not treat Appalachia as a monolith, to work through that frustration and that anger, and then find ways to use community and connection as we envision where we go next. And I am... I'm grateful to be a small piece of that. And I'm really grateful to know that there are, there are many, many others such as yourself who are out there doing that. I think honestly, that's the only thing that can keep any of us going and doing it is remembering that there's others. Um, and you know, I just wanna to touch on the frustration and anger, especially because I think for me, I realized that a lot of my frustration and anger and the negative ways I was viewing the South and Appalachia and then putting that out in my art was because I cared. Like, yeah, I'm not this frustrated and this angry because I don't care. Like this frustration and this anger is only existing because I feel so strongly about the South already. And finding a way to like, really transition that frustration and anger into not only something productive, but also not disowning it. I don't want to get rid of like, what was my beginning driving force? The frustration and anger is what led me to a much more positive and helpful place, if that makes sense. I think to reframe it through the lens of care is is actually just the best way to put it. And I'm so glad you you brought us there as we kind of come to a close here of we are we feel all the things that we do because we care and it's OK to care. Um, it's OK to care about a place that you have been taught to hate, whether you are from here or you are not from here. And I think that logic extends across the board into so many different ways of connecting and ways of activism and ways of, you know, really uh, reimagining a radical new future. And I, I just really love that. So I want to, I want to kind of leave that to hang a little bit of it's because we care. And with that leads you into what I know, you know, is coming, which is our question that we always end on. And I think it, it frames really nicely around this idea of care. So Adam, that question for you is what do you believe in? 
I think I believe in community. I believe in a collaborative process. I believe that if you put yourself out there with genuine intentions and genuine care, then you will also attract an audience of people who think the same way and feel the same way and are resonating with what you're putting out there. I make art because I already have just this insatiable fucking drive to do it. Like, you know, I'll be walking through Appalachia for hours at a time, for miles, taking photos of anything I care about, anything I see that catches my eye. Man. Yeah, I just believe in community and a collaborative process, putting yourself out there in a way that it is going to draw what you want. I feel like all of us can really attest to the the lived experience of that. And I want to add to it that it doesn't mean it happens immediately. I think all of us have felt very alone and very isolated in that care and in that love and in that drive for community. But I can look at you know, I'm coming up on four years almost back in North Carolina, which is almost insane to think about that it's it's already been that long. But to see what my life is now felt unimaginable four years ago. And so there's always a new future. And I think you just have to believe in it. So it's a great thing to believe in. Yes. No, I completely agree. I look around at the people that I've managed to surround myself with and the community I've somehow managed to scrounge up around me. Um, And I can't be anything but fucking grateful. Like knowing that all of these people are around me that truly care and truly support kind of this like-minded ideal and mindset we all have. I didn't think it was possible, honestly. Um, back then. So having it now is a dream come true and one that I have to constantly remind myself to be grateful for. Um, Especially the past three years for me, two, three years have been uh, really challenging in the sense of uh, sobriety. And sobriety for me teaches gratitude in a way that I never thought I would truly understand. And every day I'm trying to put myself out there and look at a world that I know isn't always good, isn't always great, isn't always doing what I wanted to do, but I know there's something I can be grateful for. I know there's community and people and art and love and music and all of these amazing things that I can figure out how to be grateful for. There is a poem I really like that I am forgetting the exact name of the person who wrote it, but uh, it's called Twice As Many Stars As Usual. It's a very popular poem, Um, but it is essentially about this two-headed calf being born in the middle of the night in a field. And yes, like this calf will not survive. And that is sad. And that is a crying shape. But right now, in that moment, it is looking up at the sky and there are twice as many stars as usual. And for me, I think that's also like, what do I believe in is gratitude. I believe in finding a way to be grateful for all of those things I talked about too. Community, collaboration. I love that poem. And I think it's about seeing the world up close in all its 
frustration and anger and intensity and all its joy and beauty. And I'm very grateful to be to be here and to know you and to be in conversation with you. So, Adam, thank you for being here and for joining us. And it's really lovely to catch up. And for anyone who wants to follow your work and see the way in which you see the world, which is which is just a beautiful perspective on it, where can they find you and find your work? So uh, my website is currently down. I'm remaking it post-artist year. So give me a little bit of time on that. But uh, my Instagram is probably the next best place. Um, it is at Adam Perez Dude. Yeah, no, that would be where you can usually find me. I don't post a ton, even when I probably should be. Like, I should have definitely been promoting this exhibition I'm in much more than I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm also always open for a chat. My DMs are open. Yeah. Adam, thank you so much. It is lovely to be here and with you. And we will prom- we will promote your art exhibit as best we can as well. And we'll stay tuned for the website. I am always <laughs> rebuilding websites for a variety of projects. So I, I understand where you are. But thank you for being here. Thank you for this conversation. Of course. And- I hope there's literally anything usable in it. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are many, many pearls of wisdom. And I I feel really grateful to have gotten to kind of relaunch the podcast in this way so i know our listeners will agree wherever they are wherever you are in the world have a good day good night be good stay good